Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi refinances federal and private student loans to save its members an average of $316 a month. That's a lot of money. Learn more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm here with Margaret Sullivan, formerly of the New York Times, now with the Washington Post. We were just talking this morning. Professional bloviator, you said? Yes, exactly. You were, you That's were what I do now talking, for a living. And now you're here with I me I write talking. about Thank it you. and then I go talk about it. I should tell people what you did at the Times and what you're doing at the Post in case they don't know. At the Times, you were the public editor. Yes. Now you are the media columnist for the Post. That's right. Similar jobs. No. But different. They're not really all that similar, honestly. It seems to me from very far away, and thank you for joining us, um, that they are sort of diff- the same. You're sort of critiquing the job of the media, the time, in the case of the Times, you're critiquing really specifically the Times, and at the Post, obviously, it's pretty broadly, but it seems like you're trafficking in the same stuff. Yeah, I don't see myself at the Post as a media critic, and I do think there's a little bit of a distinction there. I do criticize the media from time to time, but um, at the at the New York Times, I was in the role of the, you know, you can look at it different ways. Reader representative is one way to look at it. Internal media cop is another way to look at it. And in this role, I'm trying to take a broader view and look at things in a in a kind of a bigger picture way. I will tell you that I, when I pitched Marty Barron on this, it's I, the editor of the Post. yes, the editor of the Washington Post, I, I told him that I. You know, thought that David Carr at the New York Times had done a great job. He, of course, agreed, as every sentient being does, yeah. and said that I would try to, at least, you know, I don't think I can be David Carr, but I would sort of model what I was doing on that, which means taking a kind of a getting up and looking at it from a little bit higher, broader perspective. So I want to talk to you about both those jobs. I want to talk to you about Donald Trump. I want to talk to you briefly about the, are we allowed to bring up the, the person who has your old job now, Liz Spade? Is there, a, is there a public editor, a code of Omerta where you're not allowed to speak about each other? Well, I'll tell you this, that when I was public editor, I considered it a great gift that none of my four predecessors ever found it uh, necessary to critique my work publicly. So I, I considered that very helpful, and I certainly don't want to critique her work. I know her. She's. I consider her a friend. Um, I know she's gotten beaten up in the past few weeks and, yeah, even, so that's, and even months. That's, that's what I wanted to ask about, sort of that, that position, because I do think it's relevant to what you do now. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of folks who listen to this will, would have heard about this story, but for those who haven't, Liz Spade went on uh, Fox News, I think about a week ago, on Tucker Carlson's show. Tucker Carlson asked her about tweets New York Times journalists had made about Trump, saying they show bias. She basically on the air said, yeah, I I agree, and and these are outrageous, and something should be done about this. And then I think somehow the entire media bubble missed that weekend, which is interesting. Mm. No one watched Fox News on Friday night (laughs) in media land. Uh, And then it surfaced on Monday and became a a storm. And so she promptly got a a ton of criticism on Twitter, as you would expect, from, from journalists. Do you think that she made a fair point? Because there's, there's an argument that says, well, maybe she expressed it incorrectly, but but her, her underlying point is, is a fair one, that, that that someone like a New York Times reporter should be cautious about what, if they tweet, or maybe they shouldn't tweet at all. Well, there are standards uh, that have been articulated at the Times and, and lots of other news organizations that say, I mean, the Times does it in a pretty interesting way. They're pretty they loose, say, it seems, at the Times. It is, it is sort of loose, but... What So Phil Corbett is the standards editor. He's a great guy. And what he says is, remember that you work for the New York Times. Um, I mean, that's kind of his his guidance, that you you may think that you're tweeting as a 
private citizen. Re- private citizen, but you will always be seen as tweeting on behalf of or as right. in so your So if you're position. tweeting about breakfast, you're right. still a New York Times exactly. editor tweeting about breakfast. Right. And so, um, you know, again, I don't really want to get into whether I agree or disagree with her because I, 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 people didn't do that to me and I don't intend to do it to her. But I think that in general, it's a smart idea for news reporters to be very cognizant of how they're views are going to be seen. I mean, it's the same this is the same argument we're making about Donald Trump right now, right? Yeah, when you that's right. when you get up in the morning and tweet about Saturday Night Live, it's actually meaningful now. Right. Yeah, and I mean in terms of Trump and his tweets, I I really feel like we have to cover his tweets and at the same time I think that not every one of them ought to be treated as a five alarm fire, which often seems to be the case. In other words, his tweets about Hamilton are one thing and his tweets about how he would have won the popular vote if all of those uh, illegal immigrants hadn't voted, which, by the way, is not true. None of that is true. It's funny because we're a month into the post-Trump election phase. We're not; he's not even president, and there's just been this daily, really hourly cycle of news stories, usually generated by him or people around him. Sometimes there are people outside that circle about what he's doing, about what's happening. Sometimes they're about his tweets. And I think it's fair to argue that in some cases the media, you know, does too much self-reflection here. But I think in a lot of cases I get the sense that all of us, both as reporters and editors and just citizens who are consuming this stuff, are really trying to get a handle on how we respond to all of this, both the actual news and the, the coverage of the news. And I was going back and reading all of your stuff that you put out post-election and – seems like maybe you've gotten some grip on it. There's that first couple posts Thank and you. stories. Thank <laughs> you. I'm not sure that's true. But. I don't know either. So I'm asking you. It seems like there's, you know, initially, all right, there's that state of shock we were all in. And, and now you've been sort of, it seems like working your way up towards being more assertive and saying, this is how we should handle things. Yeah. This is how we should proceed. We should not cover each tweet. Do you feel like you've got a grip? No, I never really <laughs> feel like I have a grip. But I, I have come away since election night when I I wrote two columns on election night, one of which said the media had blown it. So epic fail. Yeah, like epic the kids fail. Said. And then the second one, which, you know, I think I wrote at two o'clock in the morning, which made it hard. I to, wrote one of those. It, it made it hard to source it, you know, was sort of a, I think it was a journalistic call to action as saying that this is going to require, you know, very diligent, new kind of, of journalistic inquiry. And this is not my expression, and I know it's overused already, but I think scrutinize, don't normalize still works pretty well, and you can dance to it. And so, so explain what scrutinize, don't mm-hmm. normalize mean. I think a lot of people have heard normalize a lot. It may yeah. even be a cliche now. Right. So the role of the press ought to be to be looking hard at what Trump and his administration are doing and to hold him accountable and be very clear about what's going on and not to fall prey to acting like it's, oh, it's just politics as usual, because I, I don't think that is the case. What do you think about the idea that you expressed, I expressed, a lot of people expressed immediately the night of the election and right afterwards for a couple of weeks, that the media had screwed up. The media had screwed up by, by enabling Trump, but had really screwed up by missing the story. Initially, that seemed to make sense. And the more I think about it, I'm, I'm less comfortable with that idea. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I think that... Uh, you know, one thing I've come to realize, and of course I knew this before, but as I've thought about it more, it's it's clearer. The the mainstream press really did tell the public who Donald Trump was. Couldn't couldn't have been more explicit, right? And I think the Washington Post did a phenomenal job um, of kind of excavating all that. They wrote a book about it, 
a really good one called Trump Revealed that, you know, and lots of other from BuzzFeed to The Times and many others did very good work, very good reporting work. So if someone were interested in knowing who Donald Trump was, they could absolutely find out. In that sense, there was no failure. I think where we missed the boat was in not looking hard enough at the forces that would, in fact, elect him and the way they would do it. So not just this, you know, oh, there was this, you know, rebellious vote among the white working class. That Because I read lots of those stories yeah, about what's going on in Appalachia and yes. the hillbilly lament or eulogy. And- right. There was, there was a lot of that, and it was good stuff. You know, I'm not sure we we fully understood the extent to which many people in the country really couldn't stand Hillary Clinton and the ways in which she wasn't connecting to a lot of regular folks. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing interviews with her where they were saying, you have, you're one of the least popular candidates in history. And then she would say, well, Trump is, is less popular. So again, it was, it was all sort of out there and laid out, and we all knew that it was a close race, right? Mm-hmm. I think eventually the polls were pretty close to correct, right, in terms of the popular vote. Yeah, I think we kind of ran with the polls a little too much. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the uh, the graphic representations of what the polls were saying, the probabilities right. were, I think although correct, misleading. Right. And so, I mean, do you think Trump is a fundamentally new kind of thing for us to cover, the media to cover, or this is where I'm thinking, the more I think about it, it seems like he's sort of an extension of the Bush years. I've been going back and reading that that Times Magazine piece from 2004, where uh, the author is talking to a Bush administration official who says, you guys live in a reality-based world, we create our own reality, and you guys have to catch up to Mm -hmm. us. It seems like there's kind of a through line there, and Trump is sort of a supersized version of that. Yeah, I guess to some extent. And also, each administration has become, I think, harder to cover in some ways. You know, each one has become uh, probably less transparent, although they all vow to be transparent right. and say they will be the most transparent. But ultimately, and, and Obama did that, as you know. But in the end, they're all progressively worse to cover. But I, I do think that Trump is something that we haven't seen before. And given that that it looks like they're going to keep going along that path and, and farther down, and it seems like they're going to cut back on press pools, and, and certainly he hasn't done a press conference yet. He promised to do one this week. He just delayed it in January. Presumably he's going to do less and less of that and less of the sort of professional customs the press is used to, right? That's maybe, right. Maybe they might even ban the – maybe get rid of the White House briefings. When I read the traditional press talk about that, Sometimes I think that they're not really making their case about why it's important to do that. And I think I'd like to hear someone make it sort of to, to an average person. Can right. you, do you have sympathy for that argument? I mean, I agree with you that there's a kind of defensive posture about the whole thing that says, well, you have to do it because we've always had it that way. And and using phrases like the protective pool as if somehow, you know, the press has this role. Right. When he goes to Jean George, they're going to help him right. cut his meat or something. <laughs> right. Exactly. But I've also seen stories about all of that that do explain it. I don't really think they get through as much as as they might. You know, the truth is he can do pretty much whatever he wants to on that, that there there is no manual and there is no law that says that he's got to hold press conferences or, for that matter, release his tax returns, which he said he would do and hasn't done. Now, certainly I want him to release his tax returns. I'm not sure that, that, that uh, frankly, I need to go through the ritual of having the press being briefed on background and getting spun a certain way. It seems like in this administration more than ever, the best and most interesting reporting is going to come from people who are 
maybe not entirely out of the bubble, but but certainly not fully inside it. Right. Yeah, one of the few things that I'm feeling pretty good about is that I think that Donald Trump and his administration are going to throw a big hand grenade into the access versus accountability mode of doing business in terms of covering politics, you know, instead of the idea that, well, you know, I'm the beat reporter and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write a lot of stories and some of them are going to be beat sweeteners that help me get the scoop. Beat sweetener is one of the best terms ever. Explain it to people who aren't in our world. So a beat sweetener is a story that you write that kind of makes the people that you're covering pretty happy and uh, makes them perhaps more likely to throw you a bone in the in the form of a scoop or a story that you might not otherwise get. It's great, right? So when you're reading one of these stories, it's unusually rosy about someone, and you're thinking, why am I reading this? Yeah. It's, that is a beat sweetener very often. It's done consciously sometimes, right? I'm going yeah. to do this to butter them up. Well, I, you know, I think it's it may not be articulated anywhere, right. but it's sort of understood. And I mean, I've, I've covered lots of news beats myself, and you, you, you know, you really, if you're covering, uh, you know, as I did, local government in Buffalo, you really can't go in guns blazing every day or pretty soon nobody will talk to you. And you need people to talk to you. That's how you cover your beat. So I do think that because the relationship is going to be so adversarial, that that way of looking at journalism is going to go away to some extent. But Trump still really likes press though, right? He's he's obviously watching TV. And I was struck uh, at the end of the election cycle when it looked like he was losing. The Times did this great story about hanging out on the plane with him and they were, you know, doing what seemed to be very amateurish uh, campaign planning. And the thing that struck me was he was, he had let a Times reporter on the plane, the Times that he supposedly hated. He were hanging out and watching him tweet. So it seems like he is still responsive to some of that, still wants that credibility and adulation. I think Trump has a weird relationship with the New York Times. And Specifically the Times. Yeah, I do. You know, he is a creature of New York, grew up in Queens, you know, made it his business to extend the family business bigly into <laughs> Manhattan. And I think that he wants the – he both pushes against and wants the approval of – the establishment media in New York City, which is certainly the New York Times. So, you know, when the Times essentially called his bluff on coming over to do the uh, what he would have preferred to be an off-the-record meeting. This is right after the election. Yep. He canceled you know, the meeting that morning. Right, he canceled it. You know, he signed up for it, then canceled it, and then went back. You know, and the Times rightly said, no, this is going to be on the record. Uh, yes, okay, you can meet Arthur Salzberger Jr. for you know, 10 minutes of chit-chat, but when you meet with editors and reporters, it's going to be on the record. And, you know, he did do that. And I think that that's something that he did because he really does want, he would like the New York Times's adulation. I, I don't think that's probably going to happen. No, but he's easy to, to please, I think. Speaking of easy to please, we're going to have our awesome advertisers come and talk to us for one second. Or I'm going to talk to our audience about them in one second. We'll come right back. Okay. SoFi is a new kind of finance company. If you've taken out student loans to invest in yourself and your career, SoFi wants to help you out. SoFi refinances federal and private student loans, and it saves its members an average of $316 a month. Remember, SoFi is not a bank, so they can do things a bank can't do. Plus, as a member, you'll have access to a ton of great perks. They run an entrepreneur program that helps members get their businesses up and running via mentorship, networking, access to investors. And as part of the program, you can pause your loan payments for up to 12 months. That lets you focus less on student debt, more on growing your business. Find your rate at SOFI.com. 
That's SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SOFI.com slash legal. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company that everyone can afford. With a Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same content you'd find on more expensive sites, just way cheaper. As a subscriber, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel that subscription. You keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off the usual price tag for my listeners only. Get your yearly subscription today for only $99 at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's videoblocks.com slash recode for this exclusive offer. And I'm back with Margaret Sullivan from the Washington Post. Um, we were talking about Donald Trump because we're required to talk about Donald Trump That's in right, every episode. That's right, at all times. I want to talk about you a little bit more. We know that you're at the Post. We know you're at the Times. And whenever I read a biography of you, it says you got your start in the Buffalo News. But did Not you, just you, my start. I was there for a very long time. It, 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 unless you've scrubbed your biography in some way, it looks <laughs> no, like no. you spent your entire life at the Buffalo I, News I, until you came to the Times. I did. I, I grew up in Buffalo. I actually grew up in a steel town called Lackawanna, New York with a, with Bethlehem Steel. So in that way, I kind of feel like I, uh, I do have a little bit of a sense of some of this uh, Rust Belt stuff that's going on. But, you know, I went to Georgetown and, and Northwestern and then came back. Was the plan, a, so the plan was to do journalism? Oh, yeah. So you went to Northwestern yeah. for, for oh, grad yeah, school? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was, I was uh, the arts editor of a paper at, at Georgetown. Where do, you and, get, uh, where do you get that bug? Well, um, it's weird. I, when I was in high school, the Watergate thing was happening and the Woodward and Bernstein, th- you know, I'm definitely of the class of journalists that came out of the adulation for the Washington Post and Watergate and all of that. And that was a that was a new idea that journalists were crusading and sort of cool and right. played I never by Robert really, Redford. I never really wanted to crusade. You know, I always hear people say, I, wanted, I want to do journalism to change the world. I, I don't feel that way. The reason I wanted to do it and do still want to do it is it has something more to do with expression and connection with with a readership and an audience. I mean, that's what... That's what's thrilling to me is to be able to have that two-way communication between the two. So anyway, I started as a summer intern and ended up as the chief editor, and I did every at, at the local paper. Yeah, the well, yeah, yeah. And I mean, owned by Warren Buffett, and at, for, at, at the time, it was owned uh, by yep, yeah. it was owned by Warren Buffett for the whole time I was there. And he was a very good owner, by the way. I've had now two excellent billionaires. Billionaires can be very good, sometimes bad owners as well. That's true. That's true. So Buffett was a good billionaire, and Bezos has been uh, a very good billionaire owner of the Washington Post. But yeah, I mean, I did every job in Buffalo and ended up as the first female editor of the paper and did that for 13 years. So I was there a long time. So you spent your but entire career But I don't say exactly lo- how long because I don't want to – you know, journalists I know are very bad at math, but I'm afraid if they do the math, they're going to know exactly how old I am. So I wasn't wrong. You have sort of scrubbed that a little bit. No, um, yeah, right. Uh, so, so I was born the editor of the paper you're, at you're age bor- 17. born, raised in Buffalo. Did you think, all right, well, this is this is my career. I'm going to end my career in Buffalo. Did you have ambitions to go somewhere else? I mean, I was bringing up a family and I had an elderly dad. It wasn't a good time for me to leave, but when that all kind of – changed and my kids were my daughter, my youngest was at NYU. I had thought for a while that the public editor job at the New York Times would be something I could do well. How does that get on your radar though? I mean, I... Because I'll tell you exactly how. Because I was fascinated by the whole chapter at the New York Times about 
you know, Howell Raines and Gerald Boyd and Jason Blair. And it was after that that Dan Elkrant came in as the first public editor. And I read him with great interest and great appreciation. But you were reading him, you weren't sort of in New York no, media circles, right? No, but we actually you're... still do some reading and yeah. some... Uh, no, no, but you're yeah. reading him the same way I would read the paper in Minneapolis, right? Like as a conventional reader, this is a really interesting topic. Yeah, but I mean, it was it was the New York Times, which sure. made it as a lifelong journalist, it made it of great interest. No, I meant reading the Times from Minneapolis, right? Like you weren't, you weren't in the the Times. No, no, not at all. I wasn't in the bubble at all. The elite global media elite. No, I wasn't. Although by the time I came to the Times as public editor, I was on the Pulitzer board and had been active in national organizations. So it's not like I So that's how you bubble up. It didn't pluck you from total obscurity. Exactly. But I I made a big play to, you know, it wasn't like they came after me. You went for that job. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I read that my predecessor, Art Brisbane, was leaving, that his contract wasn't going to be renewed. I read it in Eric Wemple's blog uh, at the Washington Post. Post. And I remember reading it, you know, at my desk at the Buffalo News and saying, that's my job. That's my job. So you apply for that job, get that job. Did you have any trepidation about getting that job? Because it seems like that's a best case scenario, very difficult Yeah, I I walked into it with my eyes wide open. I knew that I was not going to make anyone happy. In fact, I was actually very pleased that I was able to, you know, not make people happy in the sense that, oh, you know, I'm easy on everyone. But I found that, you know, I'd already been writing a blog and it was on Twitter. And I found that immediately I got this hugely positive reaction from digital journalists and people who were on Twitter and people who were, you know, looking for the public editor to have that presence. There was like, wow, she's doing this. This is amazing. We should explain a little bit more about what the job is, right? It's I think of it as a public advocate, right? You're right. You're, you see it. You're working sort of on behalf of the reader. You're paid by the time. Correct. Um, and you're an editor at the Times, but you don't report into the Times. You're sort of on an island by yourself. Yeah, you're not really – I mean the, the name public editor is a misnomer. And sometimes I think people either in, unintentionally or intentionally confuse it and they'll say, oh, the editor of the Times says this and they'll right. think you were speaking for the paper. And yeah. In fact, you're sort of not speaking for no, the paper. No, you're actually making a point of not speaking for the paper and, and I'm not – you're not really an editor at all. I mean the, the only sense in which you're an editor is that readers are writing to you – at great pace and scale, and you, you're you sort of editing through those and finding the ones that seem most meaningful. So a, a reader says, I have a problem with this, I have a question about this, and you either respond to that or you have your own question and you go right. walk and, down the hallway at the Times and yeah. knock on someone's door and say, I yeah. want to ask you a question. Right. And sometimes the reader that you're referring to is not just you know some nice person who lives on the Upper West Side, but it could be the head of the NFL, or it could be... You know, Elon Musk. Exactly, or Elon Musk. Right. So it's not always just you know, kind of your garden variety reader or somebody in New Jersey. So you you go up to a reporter or an editor and say, I want to ask you about this story you wrote. Um, Elon Musk is disappointed in this story. Right. The reaction you get from that person is what? Well, I mean, generally, I I made it my practice to usually go to editors. If then they wanted me to talk to the reporter or I wanted to talk to the reporter, I would. But I usually tried to talk to a section editor or a ranking editor, and they knew I was coming. I mean, that's the role, and they were used You're to like it. You're like IAD in, yeah, the, in, exactly. the, in the cop movie. Right. And so, you know, Internal while they affairs. might not like it, they also – I was the fifth one. So they sort of knew how it worked. And, you know, people were professional for the most part. I mean, the thing that made it hard internally was that I, I was tough. And I wrote some tough things, and very often there'd be a blowback afterwards, that it would be, 
the long, extremely well-argued Timesian email that told me exactly how wrong I was in the following ways. Did you, were you there, I can't remember, during the, the nail salon? Yes. Where did you come, come down on that? I mean, I, I thought on, that, that the nail while. salon project was a worthy idea. It's a big enterprise story about nail salons in New York, and the contention was many of them are, are run by, by Chinese immigrants who are, who are not paying their workers living right, wages. Right, not just Chinese, but, but immigrants of, from various countries who were paying their workers exploitively low wages and treating them badly. And I, my, where I came down on it, because there was a fair amount of uh, criticism of the series saying that it was overblown, was that it was a good idea and there was truth to it and that it was in some ways overstated. Did you ever get to a point where you said, boy, if I, if I write what I think and what I've reported, this is going to damage someone's career and then have second thoughts about whether or not you wanted to publish that? No. I never did that. I think did that, that ever happen? Where where something you wrote basically got someone pushed out of the Times or, or demoted or certainly not immediately. <laughs> I mean, I think that in some cases there may have been, you know, like a year later, it may have been one of the things that caused them to get their beat changed, or nobody got fired or anything like that. I mean, I tried really hard within each post and each column to be extremely fair and to be very cognizant of how powerful this was because it is. It's, you know, as soon as I would press the button, pieces would often go viral. I mean, there was this one, you might remember it, in which the TV critic Alessandra Stanley was writing about Shonda Rhimes. And she used the phrase, angry black yes. woman. And that was, you know, it drew all this criticism. And I wrote a, a couple of tough pieces about it. And they just went, it was very hard on her. And I tried to be conscious of the power of that when I wrote so that I, I didn't go too far. And she no longer has that beat. Now, to be fair... In my opinion, she had not done a good job on that beat for a long time. I think she was not suited for, to be writing about television. She didn't seem to enjoy writing about television. Yeah, the, the, the sort of odd reaction I got from her about it was that she expected people to understand. That was in the lead of her story. And she said that people, my readers, know that I write, I remember this phrase, I, I write arch provocative leads. So you were supposed to understand when you read angry black woman, that there was some distance built into it. But I don't think that that's the way people really read anymore. And particularly the way we're reading stuff in this disaggregated way, you're not turning a page of the Times art section and coming across this and seeing that, oh, it's ragged right, no, so that means it's opinion. And it's next to a Breitbart piece, exactly. depending on your media diet. Right. Maybe it's in your Facebook feed. And I got the sense from afar that, that medium distance, that the reaction, the general sort of attitude towards people in your job at the times was, you know, dismissive at best. Did no. you find people were more collegial than that? I, well, it's not about dismissive or collegial. It was, for the most part, people would say, I think most reporters and editors at the times would say, this is a necessary evil. Grudging. Yeah, yeah. And, and that if you did it well, there was a lot of respect about it. Now, they wouldn't like it if, if it came to their door. Right. But in general, I mean, I can tell you, I had many people saying, I'm really glad you're doing this. Keep it up. Keep us honest. 
I had people call me from conference rooms where they couldn't be traced and say, you ought to look at this. Reporters are, are reporting yeah. on each other. Or, well, or, not reporting on each other, but, but saying the there's a practice going on here that I think deserves some looking at, and I can't say it, so could you look into it? So that happened a lot. Someone was telling me that the, there's now an established practice, understood practice at the time, is where if, if the public editor comes to them with a criticism or a question, if you actually have screwed up, the way to handle it is you acknowledge some other problem, a small problem, and that's your concession, and then you hope the rest of it skates away. <laughs> so that is sort of practice now. But but and then overall, you did it for just about four years, right? Yeah, three and, and, and years. that's an established. So then you had a tenure that was coming up. I actually had an a longer. Date. I had a longer contract than most of the public. Most of the public editors. I mean, Oak Rent was only eighteen months. The rest were kind of two years, but could be renewed for a year or something. Because I was leaving this very secure job that I could have held for life in Buffalo, uh, you know, as editor in chief, and moving to New York. I wanted a longer contract, and I got it. However, when I got to sort of the three-year mark, I realized there's a reason that this job only goes on, you know, should have this pretty tight term limit. And I didn't... Because? Uh, because you, you need to be an outsider. You need to have an outside perspective. And the longer you're there, for one thing, the topics start to repeat themselves. So how many times can you write about giving credit to news organizations that should have gotten credit or anonymous sources, which was one of my big things... So it became clear to me that... Like any beat reporter at some point. Yeah, exactly. You start writing the same story over and over. Plus, now you've been coming into the building for three and a half years. It's hard to be an outsider. And it's really hard. And, you know, these people start to feel less like people you're reporting about and more like your colleagues. And I just felt like it was pretty important for me to, to wrap things up before. So I actually left before my contract was over. And was very happy to go to the post. Was there was there a thing you are most proud of during your tenure there? Yes. I really wailed away, as public editors had done before me, about the overuse and inappropriate use of anonymous sources. And while I'm the first to say that a lot of reporting must use anonymous yep. sources, and there's kind of reporting that's very, very important, maybe the most important, that needs to be done that way, it's way overused, and it eats away at credibility, and it just shouldn't be used to the extent that it is. And by the time I left, the Times had issued new guidelines on it and tightened it up, and I was proud about that. It seems like that's uh, – I'm going to pronounce this word incorrectly – pushing Sisyphean. a rock up the hill. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, task in that, like, I, I've seen you and many other people and Jack Schaefer take this on – and I'll hear the Times say they're, they're cutting back on anonymous sourcing, and then I'll pick up today's paper, go to my phone and read today's paper. And just for an everyday run-of-the-mill banal story about Facebook, mm-hmm. it'll say, according to a source briefed on the topic, according to a source who granted an anonymity so they could talk about this. And it just means their yeah. PR person doesn't want to be on the record. Right. Actually, and and it's, not, it's not a matter of state, right? It's just a matter about Facebook's earnings right. or something. I mean, again, the, the Times did put in some guidelines in which one of them was – If a story is going to hang on a central fact, and if that central fact comes from anonymous sources, that it has to get a special kind of review, and it basically has to be read by one of, you know, two or three top editors. And, you know, that came about because there were a couple of stories that really went wrong that were hanging on an anonymous source. And so I thought that was pretty good progress. 
And um, and so a story like the CIA uh, Russia hacking yes. accusation that broke last week. I'm sure that would have. Anonymous. I'm sure that that would have had to have been read by, be by mul- Dean Becke anyway. Right. But now there's you know there is a clear guideline and a procedure in place. So, you know, I, I hope it makes a difference. I mean, I also think it's the kind of thing that can sort of go away after time and say, oh, yeah, well, we used to be a little clearer about that, but now it, it slips back. Yeah. So when you went to the Post, this is, a, what, a couple years into the Bezos era? Uh, a couple years into the Bezos era, correct. Did I've you... only been there about six months. Right. So w- when you went there, I mean, when, when he bought it, I certainly thought, oh, man, this, this could be really bad for the paper. Um, he's going to want to digitize it and Silicon Valleyize it, even though it's not from Silicon Valley, and, and do things that a lot of smart people, when they look at a newspaper, say, well, this is inefficient. Let's change this. And he's done some of that, but it seems like he's he's injected it with and beyond just money, just energy. But did you have a sense of sort of what the paper was like prior to getting there? Well, for one thing, I had always, you know, as I said, I kind of was drawn into journalism because of the Washington Post, and I, you know, admired, you know, I mean, it's very cliched, but I admired Ben Bradley and, uh, you know, all of that. So, and I went to Georgetown. So I had been reading the Post for a long time. I admired all their critics, you know, all of that. I had seen the terrible financial shape it had fallen into, and you know, was very concerned about that. So I was glad that somebody with deep pockets and apparently a good intention had bought it but what was most important for me in going to the post was that was that Marty Baron was the editor Marty who people know through his role in the movies not his role but the role that that he was portrayed as having in the spotlight movie the uh, Catholic Church, and when he was the editor of so the Boston Leave Schreiber Globe, role. the Leave Schreiber if, if role, the Leave Schreiber role, those names, if right. those names, I'll exactly. blend it for you. You know, I'd known Marty for years, admire him very much, and I thought if I got the chance to go to work in Marty Barron's newsroom, that would be a great experience. And and did that position exist, or did you? Because Eric Wemple is was and is doing a lot of media reporting. To yeah, begin there's with. there's sort of there already were two people doing media stuff. Eric Wemple online only. And actually works for the opinion side of the paper. On the news side, so in the regular newsroom, Paul Fari, very good reporter, was you know covering media as a news reporter. So this was a new role. And this is a blend, sort of in that David Carmel look you yeah, said, right? It's like an a mix opinion of opinion, job. It's an opinion, opinion job, but on the news side and done you know as much as possible in a reported way. And in that sense, it was an outgrowth of what I was doing at the Times because I really was trying to make every piece I did very much fully reported, but also having opinion in it. And so you're six months into it. What surprises you about that job? Well, I mean, I've been really, I mean, you know, being at the Times was tough because I couldn't really have colleagues in the newsroom. So I would go to this place every day, but I couldn't really make friends. You didn't get to have lunch with them? Although I never really do that whole lunch thing anyway. But I did actually make friends at the times, but it was like you were making friends against your better judgment, right? And you never want to feel like that. So it was really nice to go to the Post and be part of a newsroom again. And it's a very collegial and a very warm and a very helpful newsroom, so that's good. And of course, I came at a time that was really intense. You know, I showed up in May and, you know, I went to both political conventions. And by the time it got to be you know, July or August, I guess August, my editor said, you know, we pretty much just want you to write about the media and politics, the media and Trump, basically. So it got to be very, very focused. 
Do you think there'll be an opportunity and and a reason to write about non-political stuff? I'm, I'm grappling oh, yeah. with this as I sort of think about how I'm going to spend the next couple of years. Yeah. yeah, because there's a lot of other stuff going on that's really important in the media world. I mean, the reason – I remember talking to David Carr about how he was approaching the column and he said it's amazing. I mean, he was talking about the digital transformation of media and how – there were just so many stories. He, you know, it was it was for him the beat that kept on giving because it, every time you turned around, there was some monumental thing happening. Well, that's still all happening, and so right, it's still all happening. It seems, in some ways, to me at least, because that's the stuff I was writing about. That now, in context, that stuff is much less important. And maybe there's a middle ground, right? Maybe some of the it's stuff less new feeling less, anyway. It's less new feeling, and I guess some of the. I mean, like when we talk about Facebook and what they're doing with the news in, in a Trump era. It means something different than a pre-Trump era, right? That's in the right. pre-Trump, we were thinking, well, what does this mean for the New York Times and our instant article is going to work and how about the revenue? Exactly. And now it's, holy shit, people believe Pizzagate's real because they're reading it in Facebook. Yeah, there's an intensity and a, a sense of importance that I think the political stuff has right now that the sort of the, you know, the changing business model doesn't seem quite as compelling. Uh, on Facebook, do you still – one of your columns called for a, a, an editor-in-chief – Right. This is something that they seem really constitutionally opposed to, although yeah. who knows, maybe they'll appoint one yeah. tomorrow. Do you still want them to do that? Do you think it's I mean, realistic? you know, that was a way for me to talk about something. I mean, do I really think they should have someone whose, na- whose title is executive editor? Not necessarily. But I do think that Facebook needs to confront and accept the fact that they are a media company, not just a wonderful way to see people's baby pictures. They really don't want to accept that. They don't. They I, they will say that over and over. And although I guess there's, uh, there's some sort of job that they're advertising for that says yeah, you I need 20 them. years experience and it's like the director of news partnerships or something like that. Yeah. I don't think that's what this no, is. No, I mean, I, I talked to them about it and it sounds like that they want someone to go talk to the newspapers and mm-hmm. make them feel better and mm-hmm. that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, while Facebook will say, but we don't produce news, they certainly distribute the heck out of it. And in fact, with Facebook Live, news is being made on Facebook. Yeah. I bet Facebook Live goes away pretty soon. You I think? think? I don't think anyone wants to do live or consume live. And <laughs> I don't think I've it done works. many, many Facebook Lives now because the, because the, well, I mean, the, the Post has agreed to produce a certain yeah. number of them. For money. And I mean, I, yeah, yes, I guess they're getting so. paid. Yeah. And they need to be a certain length, which is at least 10 minutes, I think. And, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't think they make for great journalism. Do you, uh, one, one other media critic question, but it's about the post. You guys have uh, comments. Um, a lot yes. of people have gotten rid of comments. I only noticed it because <laughs> I was reading a Pizzagate story. I think day of, and the comments were, you know, just a cesspool. Mm -hmm. And this was like a week after the Star Tribune had had shut down their comments about a story about a black Santa Claus. Do you think comments go away? Do you think they serve a a role at the Washington Post, or do you think the Post should join everyone else in dumping Mm -hmm. them? I still believe that comments are useful, and I don't want to see them go away, but I do want to see them change. I mean, the Pizzagate story, as you just mentioned, had some pretty awful comments in it. And eventually, they just disabled it and took the comments down. They had to turn that off, too. Yep. They turned it off and took the ones that were there down. So it can get ugly very, very fast. But I'm not ready to say that they don't serve a purpose. You want some kind of engagement with your readers. That's that's visible to all. Yep. Yeah. I agree. I just don't know how you do it. In a world where 
we can barely afford to pay copy editors. You can't really edit them, although I have to say the Times does moderate, at this point, they pretty much moderate every comment, which is remarkable. Um, Of course, they only open comments on certain stories. But I think that the comments at the Times often add a lot to the story. Oh, I, I love the idea of it. Um, I just don't know how you, especially if you're a national paper that's going to have reach, and especially if you're writing about a topic, including Black Santa Claus, that's somehow mm-hmm. controversial. It doesn't seem like this is something you can solve with an algorithm. It seems like you have to have a human to deal with it. And right. that seems like an enormous uh, luxury for most publications. There's an outfit working on this called the Coral Project, and they are looking for ways, and I, I think coming up with some ways to use technology to highlight the best comments and, you know, sort of downplay the worst, and it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Let's end on an upbeat note. What yes. are you most looking forward to in 2017? <laughs> it, I'm most looking forward to it not being 2016 anymore. Let's ch- I, would, I, would, I would toast you if it wasn't so early in the morning. <laughs> I agree. Thank you, Mark and Sullivan. Thanks, Peter. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to SoFi and Videoblocks, our awesome sponsors. Thanks to Digital Media for distributing all this. Thanks to iTunes and Google Play and all the places that host this stuff. Shout out to SoundCloud, which is now uh, hosting this stuff. You guys don't really care about that because you're probably listening on a different platform. But if you do want to hear it on SoundCloud, you can now hear Recode Media and our other fine podcast on SoundCloud. That includes Recode Decode, Too Embarrassed to Ask, and Recode Replay, which has our awesome new code conference audio. Speaking of conferences, I have one in February. You should join me there. It's going to be in sunny Los Angeles, actually Orange County. We're going to have Eddie Q from Apple, executives from Amazon, BuzzFeed, Facebook, Google. We're going to have lots of cool conversations just like the one I had with Margaret, but live in person. Go to Recode.net. You can check that out and figure out how to join us there. Thanks again to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. I'm back next week with my boss, Kara Swisher. I got to interview my boss, and you guys get to hear what that sounds like. See you then.